0: Good girl. Check, check, check. Uh, hello. Hi. Oof. Everybody, happy Hi. new year. Happy new year. Happy 2024. We're doing
1: it. A year that will definitely suck because it's an election year. There's no oh, doubt about that. Oh
0: my god. I didn't we even can try to ignore it
1: as much as we want but it, we can
0: oh it's going to be even worse than a normal election year because there's also all the Trump lawsuits and civil suits and yeah. it's going to the Supreme Court next month they're going to decide it is going to be obnoxious and terrible
1: but at least it'll be better than 2020 because there's no illusion of something good happening we just know that's it's going to be a good bad
0: point. there's no bernie out there
1: and that's really i think my my political analysis of the present moment is that it's becoming increasingly clear that nothing the people in power will do will be good. And there's no longer like a faction to root for. Yeah,
0: that's yeah. I think if anything over the last two, three months, um, it's been a very clarifying moment. I think this ongoing atrocity and ethnic cleansing in Gaza, um, and the Biden administration's half-hearted protestations (laughs) against the murder of thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children, um, Has taken, it looks like a large swath of the left wing, like the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and just like push them off the table now. Fascinating to watch in real time as Biden and company, Blinken and company continue to do the same thing. They just, they're staying the course, even as things, um, you know, ratchet up in that part of the world too.
1: Or just the Democrats generally demonstrating to people that we're not on your side. Absolutely not. And- the Republicans, of course, aren't on the si- on anyone's on the people's side either. The, like the the differences between them are smoothing over. Yeah. And until we're just seeing one kind of theory of like the people in power stay in power. Yeah. And they have without any illusion that they're going to do anything good with the power, like solve the climate crisis right. or uh, make sure there aren't genocides and ethnic cleansings. Like that's all going to continue happening. But the point is, they get to keep power
0: there this wasn't on the sound sheet i didn't intend to talk about it but while we're on it um i feel bad and secondhand embarrassment for um all the fetterman heads out there you know this is the other thing it's not even i
1: feel bad for fetterman's head yes and then too. anyone who aspired to be a fetterman head also yeah that guy makes me embarrassed. anyone who put on the bald cap
0: yeah support. put on the bald cap in their car the hearts you, so the, the only thing he accomplished was changing the dress code in the senate and
1: yeah uh, I, I support that um did you know that Fetterman has like connections to the hardcore punk scene? Because oh, yeah. he was the he was the mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania during this period. It was a, a suburb of Pittsburgh, like a post-industrial, really run down uh, town. Like that's basically part of Pittsburgh. Um, and he was the mayor of it during this period of urban renewal where he was basically giving free or almost free property to a lot of artists and countercultural people in oh. the late 2000s. So a lot of punks moved there, including a lot of really good hardcore bands like Hounds of Hate, the one that comes to mind. And he was like a part of that scene, like he would go to shows and stuff. Oh man! So he was—he's
0: from that part of the world. He's from—he's from Pennsylvania. He's from Southside Pittsburgh, yeah. I bet he knows our he's probably friends. not from Braddock, but if he's of the age, he's probably in his fifties, right? He's—he's he's of the age that he probably palled around with Aus Rotten. You remember them?
1: I don't know if he paddled around with those. I bet Aus he Rodden, pal- pal- around he, with those terrorists. He probably, yeah, he
0: probably drank with them at, yeah. a, in Squirrel Hill at some point. There in the '90s, House Rodden was cool because um, there was like it was the end of history, and we were trying to find things to be mad about, and they had this song about the ATF. And went ATF, ATF. We don't need the ATF, ATF. Which yeah. was weird for the punk scene because the context of it was Waco. So they were like pro Branch Davidian, or at least like pro rights for the Branch Davidians not to be burned alive by the by the ATF. So I'm guessing maybe I Fetterman, think they're right about that. Fetterman, like a lot of Gen Xers, has moved have moved to the right. Gen X punk kids, you know.
1: Yeah, he said he said in a recent interview like I was a pinko for 30 years, but. Now I don't recognize the left anymore because of what colleges have done <laughs> right. to okay. the left. As if like pro Palestinian rhetoric wasn't a thing twenty, thirty years ago. I guess right. i I don't think that's true. That
0: was one of the main entry points into left politics. Yeah, that was like that w- I, I mean, remembered.
1: when I was in college, it was just the tail end of the second intifada, so yeah. that was sort of the international issue to the point where I kind of had these sort of critical politics of pro Palestinianism. It's like why are we only focusing on this issue yeah. um, that did, I think, fade away after the second Intifada. And, uh, uh, and so I, maybe he just missed that. And maybe, maybe like, well, he a, was a lefty at a time when no one cared about Palestine. And
0: I mean, the left is such a broad category. It's hard to even know what he means when he says he was a pinko. I mean, I guess he believed in giving free property to artists, he believed in urban renewal and gentrification, he right. believed in localism and like supporting local businesses. He believed in I chasing guess. down
1: drug dealers he, uh, or suspected drug dealers. <laughs>
0: didn't, did he shoot somebody or he beat somebody with a bat? He's a great example of what we were just talking about. Like even the people who claimed to be on the side of Straight like, progressive revenge. values. Yeah, he's... Um, he's gone the other way now. So where do you look? Where do you look for social change? You know, you can't. The most progressive American president since FDR is like prosecuting a near genocidal. We don't. I, do you think it's genocide? What's happening in Gaza? Yeah, at this point, I do. I mean, it's. It seems like the
1: division is whether they will ethnically cleanse the entire area and settle it, or I don't know what the the israeli opposition to that is but there is i guess divisions there the
0: the opposite Um, but i I do
1: think that the way israel is prosecuting the war is to just kill as many people as possible they they are like obsessed with birth rates and like population and and, like the demographic differences i really uh in my past didn't understand quite how much they care about removing as many palestinian lives as possible Mm. killing as many people like maximizing collateral damage has been sort of the strategy. If you could even call it collateral damage because it's unclear that these strikes are actually targeting anyone.
0: I mean, what they are targeting is um, civilian infrastructure like this was there's just been a whole lot of debate online and in uh, newspapers and all over the place about this definition of genocide. Are we going to use like the U.N. definition, the Nuremberg trial definition, or is it like the Armenian genocide where like a couple million people are marched out in the desert to like literally all be killed? I didn't get involved in that debate because I think it's uh, when you're talking, when you're discussing these definitional things, I think you need to like be really clear about what's actually happening instead of throwing words around. But it really changed for me like two, three weeks ago when you started to see the like absolute destruction of uh, civilian infrastructure, not just hospitals, but like, you know, sewage treatment. Roads, bridges, everything like that, making the place uninhabitable. And also what you saw very clearly, uh, which is like the... Similar to like the Catan Forest massacre, an attempt to obliterate not just Hamas, but like the entirety the entire like intelligentsia yeah, of the, the Gaza class. people, the middle class I, I and, heard an interview and journalists in a, as that well.
1: One of the first neighborhoods in Gaza City they flattened was like the middle class neighborhood like yeah. surrounding the central school. It's but, an attempt
0: to make life in Gaza impossible yeah, they, and destroy literally right. destroy an entire society. Mm-hmm. Which I, for me, like that, obviously crosses the line into something. And there was this crazy idea they had that Egypt was somehow going to accept 2.3 million refugees, and that even the United States was going to allow that to happen. When that didn't come through, despite some efforts, you know, on both sides to try to convince uh, this uh, like local powers to accept the ethnic cleansing of Gaza, like the actual literal like expulsion of peoples. Now it seems like what they're trying to do is make life so unlivable that. I guess Gazan refugees are going to storm the Egyptian border and it's going to be some sort of mm. like chaotic thing or like the starvation and disease gets so bad that finally they'll relent to to ethnic cleansing. It is, I mean, we're watching in real time an atrocity that is reminiscent of the 20th century. It's like a mid-20th century, early 20th century type atrocity. Uh, it's it's, it's not, incredible it's, to watch. It's not, it not,
1: I mean, like we talked about, Last year, the the ethnic cleansing of Nagorno-Karabakh, of Muslims into Bangladesh from Myanmar, which, you know, things that we don't really talk much about or know much about. Um, this is on, a I, I think, a larger scale and a larger intensity in terms of like the way it's being pushed with just bombs and destruction of cities in a very short period of time. And then even on top of that, I think what's really resonating, besides just the horrible images that are coming out and the numbers that are coming out is the fact that the international condemnation from like the voices that really matter, like you, you know, the, the first world countries not there even in a performative way. Yeah, Like the Biden administration, despite saying like a thing or two about like Israel should do a little better is really like clearly supporting it all the way as is Germany, as is England. Uh, and, So it's just sending a message that's like, not only is genocide continuing to happen, but we don't really like have the, there's no even political will, let alone the mechanisms to stop it. Yeah. Unless it's someone we don't like doing it.
0: Right, right. I mean, I think, I hate to take a nuanced position on this and in the Biden administration, but they've put themselves in such a monstrous position that they're on the one hand providing 2000 pound bombs that are just flattening entire neighborhoods of Gaza, killing tens of thousands of people. They're signing off on, um, I guess, uh, the invasion and bombing of hospitals and all the way down the line. But at the same time, they claim they're working behind the scenes to make, you know, the worst, um, the worst effects of it to try to ease off of them a little bit. And it just seems to me, it's such an absolute obscenity. Um, to, to watch this happen in real time, um, but also to see the way, like you said, the cowardice of all the various different ruling classes of Europe, including Sweden and Denmark, places that have traditionally been uh, sympathetic towards uh, the people of, uh, of Palestine. Um, at the same time, though, you do have, I think, a real isolation of the United States happening. Like the United States' ability to sit on the Security Council of the UN and veto various resolutions or abstain, as the case may be, has we've seen over the last couple few months that America gets more and more isolated. This is maybe the larger context of the thing. If we can try to like zoom out a little bit from the ongoing genocide that's happening, is this continuing isolation of the United States? This uh, continuing attenuation of American power and this continued uh, failure of the United States to succeed in the various different geopolitical aims it puts forth. If the attempt was to try to make this Gaza war a precise war, uh, or as the Biden administration says, to use special operations and precision bombing, uh, and human intelligence on the ground and Hosky res- re- rescue teams. It has failed absolutely miserably, and it's the worst of both worlds for the United States. You have moral revulsion from 90% of the world's population towards the United States and the inability to have America's uh, ally and patron, um, Israel, uh, do what America asks.
1: Well, I think, I think the United States will continue to play that role so long as we are such an important... Like production vector But also consumption vector Like if the United States Was isolated in any meaningful way What would that mean for So many of the world's workers Who work for the United States In one way or another Or like subsist based on The United States scraps In one way or another Like I I think the United States Understands that Protecting itself and its interests And it's It's like sort of the economic Like just like China's sort of positioning itself to be like the producer of the world's commodities. The United States has been the consumer of the world's commodities and like its excesses are what, like, like just think about how important remittances are for sure. so much of the world. Yeah, um, And we, we can talk about shipping and stuff like that, but um, just to put a button on the point I was making before I read this great article in the Brooklyn Wet rail by, it was an interview by of Emilio Manassian mm. called Gaza and extreme militarization of the class war. And um, it's great, just in its like political economic analysis of of the conflict and of Israeli society and of Palestinian society, which we've talked about before. There's not a lot of great writing coming out along those lines, and this is, I think, a, a very good uh, interview. Um, but a point that he makes that I really resonates with me is that the identification with Palestinians amongst the left and amongst um, I don't know working class people all over the world is, is not only because of the specific nature of the, of the Israeli Palestinian conflict. But there's this recognition of, of the Gazans as this surplus proletariat that's just being done away with. Mm. And like what that means for the future of proletarians who in one way or another want to resist like mm. proletarians. And, you know, we're, we're here talking in little Bangladesh. Yes. Like, yeah, that's true. And we're thinking about, you know, not only this crisis for the Gazan people, but also the, crisis of Bangladeshi people when sea le- level sea levels start to rise like what does that mean for millions of Bangladeshis yeah and uh, who are va- vastly proletarian how are those people going to be managed when they need to leave or they need to fight in some way or even under best conditions you know they want to have a revolution or something and the answer when we look at israel is is carpet bombing yeah like they'll be we can exterminate them ruthlessly with support of the international rules-based order. right? And I just want to read this one quote from it. Yeah, please. It's not a war, but rather management of the surplus proletariat by means of total war, by a democratic, civilized state belonging to the central block of capitalist accumulation. The thousands dead there seem to me to have a a particular meaning as they sketch a terrifying image of the future, of capitalist crises to come.
0: I mean, I think it's interesting you mentioned Bangladesh because... Even within the United States um, diplomatic apparatus, the State Department, there's been a lot of dissent. And we know there's been dissent among staffers in Congress. There's been dissent within the Biden administration because everybody can see with their eyes what's happening over there. There were various different dissent memos right, sent within the State Department, which is this means by which uh, if there's like an objection, a moral objection or a practical objection to a particular policy, various people within the State Department are allowed to write these Descent memos, you know about this? Yeah. Yeah. So you have all these dissent memos that have been coming out about American policy towards Gaza. The last time, you know, really a ton of dissent memos started going out, it was under Kissinger and Nixon and it was the Bangladeshi genocide oh, wow. of the 1960s. And so as much as I agree with the quote, you know, that you're talking about, and I think that, that, that there is like a dynamic to this current crisis, which includes a climate crisis that, you know, wasn't hitting in the 1960s does point towards the future. But I think that this barbarism under capitalism um, goes back to the 1960s with Bangladesh. It goes back to uh, the 19 teens with the Armenian people. It obviously goes back to the 1930s and forties with the Jewish people in Europe. This, this barbarous tendency within capital or perhaps the barbarism that we live under, under the domination of capital is one that it seems comes and goes in various different waves. So we should be careful, I think, maybe not to to say like that this is something particularly new or novel that's happening in Gaza. That it is the Israeli people doing it to the Gazan peoples is particular, but it could have been, you know, uh, Hindu Hindutva, um, Hindutva, like yeah. Hindu nationalists in um, in India. Uh, back in the in the 1960s. But it, it,
1: it could have been, but I think that my point is that it increasingly will be. Military might, economic might makes right is replacing the political pretenses of the more liberal world order.
0: But that is, like when I was saying that the United States is isolated, um, I should put that in different terms, right? When you mentioned remittance, we should um, like kind of... Zoom out a little bit from from that aspect of it too, because uh, a ton of Thai workers get remittance from Israel, mm-hmm. and a ton of Pakistani workers um, make money and send remittances back from Saudi Arabia german Germany, and Turks, or whatever. There is like a real like core capitalist versus periphery uh, capitalist dynamic to this that 's broader than just the United States and we t- when I talk about American isolation, there are particular instances like we're seeing now of diplomatic isolation of the United States. But as we're going to talk about on the various articles that we brought up for today's show, American isolation is also a reflection of a sort of overturning, sort of end of a particular dominant uh, imperial moment in which the United States didn't even have to many, most times... um, give £200, two hundred two thousand pound bombs to like his very various different client states to prosecute these genocides. It didn't have any worries about um, say like shipping through the Red Sea because there weren't like Houthi militants who had like basically all the means of an of a military arsenal that like a state would have that's willing to through solidarity and for political purposes like block the Red Sea they there's a series of crises right now, and they're all kind of coming together. They're all sort of snowballing. American geopolitical isolation is a broader reflection, I think, of this um, these changes we've been talking about for a couple of years now, away from a rules like a, a unipolar world, of course, and towards a multipolar world. So the isolation also reflects different national interests all of a sudden pulling away from the core, from the United States.
1: Well, we'll see. I mean, there's like the most positive negotiations about like how to end this uh, atrocity is coming from Middle Eastern countries trying to first and foremost prevent the outbreak of a regional war, but then also try to, to, to stabilize Israel's growing integration into the Middle East economy. Mm. Um, and then uh, to be really cynical, probably lastly deal with the humanitarian crisis. Mm. Uh and yeah, the United States has not played a central role in that. It's only played a central role in supporting Israel. Mm-hmm. So will if will that be something that will will like the United States uncritically supporting Israel and Ukraine backfire? Uh, I think it's too early to say. Um, but I I'm not I'm not convinced of that yet. But let's get into the let's talk more about the operation enduring prosperity or whatever.
0: <laughs> enduring prosperity is because because that what it's called.
1: It is, it is very interesting to, to see such a marginal militant group pose this kind of challenge to, you know, like the, the lifeblood of world
0: capital. Yeah. Um, and the article uh, from the, the Times... This article is called Red Sea Attacks Leave Shipping Companies with Difficult Choices.
1: Uh, it, it sort of concludes that shipping is in a better place now than it was during the pandemic and is also in a more versatile position. Um, so even, so to the extent that some shipping has been redirected and not all of it, like for example, oil is is moving completely freely. Uh, and I, I re- I've read i read something to the effect that this is causing something of an economic crisis in Israel because a lot of ships aren't coming in that would normally or mm-hmm. like shipping costs are much higher for Israel and Middle Eastern ports specifically. Uh, but something that was buried in that article that uh, I haven't heard mentioned is that the Panama Canal now has really low water levels as a result of a drought. A drought, yeah. So not only are ships having to go around South Africa uh, instead of going through the Suez Canal, but ships are having to go past the, what is it, the Cape of Good Hope? Or, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, down um pa- down past Chile.
1: Yeah go, yeah, go past, yeah. Patagonia. Has, has to take that route because the Panama Canal is now uh, semi-impassable. Yeah. Um, so you get the convergence of this political crisis, this ethnic crisis, and then the the climate crisis at the same time, testing the supply chain, and the supply chain sort of organically through the the need for these products. Basically, everything that gets shipped needs to adjust to that. And the article claims that it's adjusting fairly well.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh,
1: but the fact that Houthis armed with these kind of makeshift drones, I mean, I don't under, i don't totally understand how they're supplied, I guess, through Iran or something? I'm not sure. Uh, presumably but,
0: through Iran, yeah. But
1: you got to assume that some of what they're getting is just from these ships, too. Like, ships are coming into Middle Eastern ports, and that makes its way one way or another to the Houthis. Um, so it's... It's like the the international supply chain's creating its own crisis of arming militant groups who are opposed for one reason or another to the supply chain, Yeah, and then trying to maintain itself uninterrupted despite that crisis. It's a really interesting it's, it's question. Fa-
0: it's fascinating, and that's why I put it um, on, on today's episode, because if you remember just a couple of years ago, remember Evergrande? Remember we mm-hmm. were cheering on when that wonderful ship um, Which was a crashed. much,
1: I think, worse situation uh, for international shipping than this,
0: it, that was like a signal that showed uh, the potential for blockages, and it happens during the um, coronavirus pandemic, and those, all the blockages at the various ports all around the world, the lack of ships to move goods, uh, the lack of workers to move those goods off the port. You've had shipping and the sea lanes start to to go from like an accidental crisis uh, with the Evergrande and with COVID. Uh, and then a, a, a stabilization, but now we're starting to see a political crisis on the high seas. This is like master and commander shit, right? And I think that the seas are a broader flashpoint beyond even the Red Sea, beyond the ecological stuff too. What is this Taiwan shit about? You know, what is what are these ratcheting tensions in the South China Sea about? They're about control of shipping lanes. I mean, they're about a lot of different things, right? The Taiwan
1: and the production
0: of semiconductors right yes yeah so the semi there's like which are
1: needed for drones
0: yeah and also probably needed for ships (laughs) Uh you know it's all connected man but like what china is proposing to do and what china is doing it looks like is is creating a blue water fleet a fleet capable of doing that very important but I, i think often unappreciated role that the u.s navy does which is, and the British Navy to a smaller extent, which is to keep the international shipping lanes open and free from piracy uh, to basically be the, the sort of sinews and veins of international trade. Uh, now there's competitors within this, which is fascinating. And now like accidental crises in the Suez Canal, these pressure points that we've been talking about as communists for a long time. You know, we were talking about, the giant facility that exists in Tennessee, where Amazon and FedEx and UPS send all their shipping out, you know, all over the country. How could we imagine communist organizing that could actually start to use these pressure points in order to build class power? That's not exactly what's happening right now with the Houthis in the Red Sea, but we're starting. Well, to it see sort of ship- is
1: because okay, so the Houthis aren't communists, obviously. They're yeah, they're as far as I can tell, like a far right group. Yeah, uh, but what they what what they've shown is that sort of marginal militant groups can kind of assert their demands on shipping, and then what's the response to that going to be? The U.S. Army isn't mobilizing to destroy Gaza; mm. they're just outsourcing that to Israel. Mm-hmm. But they are mobilizing to ensure those shipping lanes. Yeah, and you know there there had been like a socialist revolution in Yemen before, and we right. saw the the destruction of that revolution in order to, uh, it, it, partially in order to secure those ports. Yes, yeah. So again, I think this leads us back to like, well, how how are these pressure points exerted by marginal political groups or, or like, let's say one day it could be asserted by Yemeni workers mm. instead of Yemeni militants, well, it would be put down militarily. But mm-hmm. the ports would be seized and, you know, taken over by, an international military co- coalition, or the United States, or the UN, or Israel, or yeah. yeah. So the you know the the reproduction of the global capitalist economy will become more heavily militarized. I think to prevent, you know, it's like it's going to be like a new phase of the war on terror in a way, uh, but it'll be explicitly against the potential of some kind of like international workers' uh, ability to control those things. Right, right, right. But you know, also that kind of military mobilization that sort of like intense repression breeds more resistance yeah. in various ways and unfortunately that resistance now is being centralized in kind of proxy groups
0: there's a there's a paranoid vision uh, and you see it on the on the liberal left and you also see it on the neoconservative right this paranoid vision that is redolent of like John Birch Society shit uh from the 1950s and 60s where there's like a grand conspiracy uh that the multipolar world that's arising is basically, uh, I don't know, coordinated through um, Beijing and coordinated through Moscow. And there is this axis of resistance uh, that spans from um, Shia forces in uh, Iraq to Hezbollah in Lebanon to the Houthis in Yemen uh, and, and other smaller groups beyond that, that there is some sort of like block forming um, and that all of these pressures that are rising are part of a concerted action to take down American hegemony, right? To like destroy the rules-based international order, to destroy the West. And I, th- I think that that conspiratorial mindset is how is like how a liberal or how a neocon tries to understand the world because everything has to be very purposive. Everything has to be like some subjective thing that somebody did. But we are seeing at the same time, in a more organic and I think like acephalist sort of way, the breaking up in the world into like uh, at least two blocks right Mm -hmm. with uh china and russia and iran and iran um Who,
1: who have when when like uh the the strait of hormuz was discussed like this was sort of the the central concern that a lot of people had against iran is that they have this choke point yeah they're they're able to assert this kind of choke point on the world economy uh and and I think that's that's been the driver of regime change logic for the United States Absolutely. for so long.
0: And is American and part of American support for Israel beyond its uh-huh. ideological support? Of course, it's uh, what was the term? I, I forget who Dean Atchison or something like that called Israel an unsinkable aircraft carrier right in the right in the Middle East. Yeah, like I I think that um, this all comes back to at the end not merely like a, um, a conspiracy on the part of like non-Western powers in order to break the back of American hegemony. Although Ru- I think the the Russia-Ukraine war is kind of partially uh, that. Um, but it's more fundamentally about um, a lack of growth, a lack of productivity, a lack of profits, uh, and a real decline in America's ability to do things like adequately protect shipping lanes or provide enough munitions to the Ukrainians or even to uh, be able to hold back their attack dog in the Middle East when they want to bomb you know, 280,000 women and children. And so we're in the midst of this process now. You know, I, I posted something. I, I don't post a lot lately, but I posted something about, I think it was Krugman, Paul Krugman, the New York Times guy, did a post and he said, well, I guess that's it. Everyone was calling for a recession. We don't have a recession. Look at the jobs numbers. Look at growth is up in the United States. Where did the recession go? And it's obvious where the recession went. It was exported to Europe. (laughs) It was exported to China. You know, China will uh, predicts, you know, Chinese economists predict a 4% growth rate right now. Let's not forget that China was carrying uh, the rest of the capitalist world for the last 20, 30 years or so with its like above 10% growth rates. So as like the pressures on national capitals and pressure on international capital rises, as America's economic might relatively declines and as america becomes more and more overstretched and we saw this in iraq and afghanistan now in ukraine and in gaza um, all sorts of different actors throughout the world uh, ruling classes uh, and insurgent groups are trying to uh, reorder the global order and i think the shipping lanes we should look to this in the future because this example of Blocking like this, 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 this main artery of, uh, of world shipping in solidarity with people being genocided, uh, is maybe a positive counterexample to these scary tendencies that we see happening right now with the elimination of surplus populations, with capital's use, uh, with the state's use of violence in order to put down any sort of, um, useless proletarians. Uh,
1: yeah, optimistic. I, I, I don't know. I think that. In a way, it, it I see what you're saying because like this crisis wouldn't happen had not there been this reappearance of resistance from Gaza and the exponentially vicious response to mm-hmm. it. But I do it does just seem to me that even amongst the people acting in the name of Palestinians is kind of like besides the point. Mm. So I'm I gotta be more cynical about it. Yeah. And then an, you know, another cynical way to read it is like okay, there's this second block around Russia and China. And what's their solution to this question of shipping lane crises is, well, global warming will take care of that because there's going to be shipping lanes in the North Seas. Right, right. Well, um,
0: I I, gave, I put the Russia and China article in on more on uh, shipping stuff too. I found it fascinating. And let me pull up the, uh, the name of the article right here. This is all from... Uh, all right, here's the article. It's uh, War in Ukraine Has China Cashing In. This is a fascinating article because if you remember the... Sino-Soviet split, not remember personally because neither of us were around, but in the 1960s, you had various clashes and tensions arise between uh, China and Russia, not only about alternate visions of the actually existing socialist developmental model, right? but also like straight up border clashes. There are all along uh, that border, which used to be heavily armed and there used to be all sorts of like low level and low intensity warfare happening uh, through the course of the 20th century now has turned into a series of boom towns, right? You have um, this alternative um, trade infrastructure that's arising now on the China and uh, Russia border where um, natural gas um, and other uh, petroleum products are moving across the border at a rapid clip. You also have uh, an increase in trade of a lot of the goods that Russia was sanctioned out of using on the West are now coming from China as well. Most prominently in this article, vehicles, Right. Ten years ago, if you were like an upper middle class uh, Russian uh, under the Putin regime or the Medvedev regime, uh, you were driving a Mercedes Benz or you were driving a BMW. Uh, Now, because of the sanctions regime, all of the most of the new cars that are being sold in Russia are Chinese cars and. They're not even, um, they're all the old gas guzzling cars because the Chinese people themselves with their domestic auto industry have pretty much all moved over to electric vehicles. So you have this massive boom in trade across uh, other, what had been a very like violent border now. Another sort of sense of where the, this, uh, these geopolitical shifts are going. Shuggy, what are you doing Playing with the octopus. Oh, you want to play Mr. Octopus, Shug? Bring <laughs> that octopus over here. Bring, bring Mr. Octopus. It's great to record over here. Now, because we get Now, to- when
1: Shuggy's picking up the octopus, yeah. does that mean that Shuggy is uh engaging in an anti-Semitic trope and saying that Israel <laughs> has its octopus tentacles all over the world?
0: Well, how could she? She'd have to be a self-hating Jew. I mean, she is clearly of Jewish extraction, Shuggy. I mean, that menorah over there is for her, too. <laughs> When she picks up Mister Octopus, it means that she wants you to go grab that thing, squeak it, and throw it a little
1: Shuggy bit. Shuggy is short for Shugman.
0: Shugman. <laughs> Shug Peekerman. get that octopus, destroy it, destroy its she tentacle power. Is vicious. That's one of her favorite toys. She has a lot of good toys, but that one is a, a good one. So maybe a good place to uh, for a little intermission in the episode with uh... well,
1: an- another article that you had flagged to discuss was the the president of Harvard getting squeezed out, and I I didn't pay much attention to it because i don't really care about harvard or or institutions um but it is it is an interesting kind of political front in the united states and as this the right wing has earned this legitimacy through a backlash against wokeism is becoming an international culture war or like the the signs of a split within the international intelligentsia Mm -hmm. bourgeoisie And I see that split being specifically um, a backlash to social justice thinking, Mm. uh, including uh, essentially the university as a place where someone might come to the opinion that the world order is fucked or like the racial order in the United States or other countries are fucked or that colonialism is an ongoing process Mm -hmm. that should be uh, challenge and that you know people in Palestine deserve to the rights of citizenship. For example, or like if this is what we believe in liberal democracies is like the correct way for governments to behave. Mm. Uh, so the suppression of that kind of thinking um, has sort of combined with this post Black Lives Matter backlash against the assertion of. Uh, uh, of like the, the post-civil rights movement in terms of black liberation, women's liberation, queer liberation, etc., the way that that became an academic world unto itself and the backlash against that, starting as this kind of uh, facade of like protecting academic freedom yeah. or freedom of speech, has now fully morphed into the revanchist suppression Of academic freedom and freedom of speech. Yeah. Through this very clear smokescreen of plagiarism, obviously. It's not a... This isn't about this woman plagiarized something because she was cleared in an internal review. Uh, It's that she wasn't able to suppress to the demands of her her donors and uh, the U.S. representatives in this, like, hearing the the pro-Palestinian sentiment of students. Mm Mm-hmm. Basically, she was fired because she wouldn't make pro-Palestinian groups, she wouldn't ban those groups on campus the way that Columbia University did, for example. And there was pressure from Zionist groups and from the right to defund these institutions if they wouldn't do that. And the, the logic of it is that the universities are teaching, like the universities and TikTok mm-hmm. are teaching kids Especially TikTok. to hate yeah. Israel yeah. as a way they to sidestep. They start si- on
0: TikTok, then they go to Harvard and they learn the real <laughs> shit. It's a way to
1: sidestep the, you know, like people aren't like learning that Israel is bad in school. They're learning it from the news. Like yeah. no matter what the news is saying, they're seeing what's happening and they're like, well, this is fucked up. We have to protest this. Like people feel um, disgusted and outrage about how the United States is supporting this. And so they're protesting and they're correct. And there's no argument against it. Like when I go to pro-Palestine protests in New York, people aren't arguing with the protesters. Mm. They're just mad that the protesters exist. Yeah. So they're just the same way that Black Lives Matter, you know, what was the argument against Black Lives Matter? Well, all lives matter, which means like, what about the cops? Like the cops should be able to like kill people because they're afraid for their lives. You know, it's not an argument with, the questions of, of black liberation. It's an argument with, should people be mad? Should people assert themselves? Should people protest? And the only way to logically suppress it is to say that, well, they're being manipulated by institutions in some way. And so the institutions need to be attacked.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's a really, really good analogy. If you think about like Israel is the cop, just merely on the beat, trying to defend itself. You know, innocent. It's got this authority. It's what was the line that the Biden administration both kept using? Uh, Israel has a duty and the obligation to protect itself from these genocidal terrorists, right? The same analogy works with the cop, right? The cop uh, puts his knee on somebody's neck while he was attempting to protect and serve. You know, these people have the authority to do this, and if you don't stand up for them, even if they do something, you know, a little bit off, right? Law and order breaks down. You're giving these, you're you're putting them at risk, right? Same arguments apply here. It's fascinating that you know college is supposed to be a place where you learn like the deep history and the structures of society, or at least it's a place where you're supposed to be trained in order to like go on and live a productive middle class life, having a decent job as like an engineer or as a writer or whatever the case may be. The university um, has has really turned into this locus of struggle, not really for the left as much as between the center left and the, and the center right. Um, it's this giant proxy battle that's happening in these elite universities like Harvard and MIT that purposefully, I think, and very effectively turns the argument away from, say, the thousands of people being killed, the bombs falling every day, the 75-year history of dispossession of the Palestinian people, the 100-year history of Zionism in that particular area and what it meant for the people who had lived there. Those, of course, questions get brushed away. Those questions, of course, that college is supposed to allow people to answer uh, and, and think and speak seriously about. Instead, it turns into this big, giant sideshow. And the right, like the new right or the dissident right, has, uh, I think, been reading a lot of Carl Schmidt. And they're very much into now uh, the friend-enemy distinction. This guy, Christopher Rufo, with the Manhattan Institute, has been very clear about this um, this tactic that they're using, this strategy, uh, in order to basically um, revamp, uh, tear down, and rebuild these institutions uh, to their liking. You know, basically take the progressive character of these universities and replace it with traditional values whatever the case may be right but what they're doing is they're collecting scalps now and they're pressed they're pulling these particular culture war levers and it's working for like i don't know 20 30 percent of americans who get really really excited to see people they don't like with blue hair get punished or see uh successful black women get taken down a notch or two right but What's startling and fascinating about this entire thing is that, of course, all these people are from these institutions. All the people engaging in this high-level culture war, the woke versus anti-woke, right? These are places that they come from. They come from Harvard. They come from Columbia. They come from Stanford. And they're involved in this internecine warfare happening on these university campuses, completely removed from all the rest of us. But they think, and to a certain extent it does work, to keep this like long-running increasingly absurd uh, culture war going in lieu of having like an actual politics, having actual solutions to people's problems, having an actual plan for the future. Right. And so instead now we're supposed to stand up for um, the DEI um, Harvard woman uh, president, right. Um, And have her back uh, against these, you know, terrible right-wing ghouls who are coming to take down, um, you know, successful women, or whatever the case may be, what i 'm trying to say is that if the left were to be if the Marxist left were to be to be liquidated from the universities, which might happen sometime in the next five, ten, fifteen years, or there's so not much of it. there's not much of it there. There yeah. was never that much there to begin with. Um, i don't think it would be that great of a loss for us, and what this is really about is not about marxism. it's not about uh, communist theory or whatever. It's an internecine struggle between like two wings of liberalism right now, which is fascinating to watch from the outside. And you can have some sympathy, I think, with one side or the other. But the university itself was already under threat. It was already self-liquidating itself for the last 20, 30 years or so under neoliberalism with like the death of tenure and the rise of this administrative bloat on top of the thing. What the DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, is that what it is? Mm -hmm. Is a way for as... Um, as a university degree has become less and less valuable for actually getting like a good middle-class job anymore over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, you know, universities and politicians have been uh, pushing STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, and mathematics as a way to make the liberal arts education take a backseat to more practical, like engineering and job-driven stuff to help build a stronger economy or whatever. That left the humanities um, without a real purpose, right? If a broad-based liberal education, which allows people to think critically about the world and write good memos for their office job, right, is all of a sudden devalued, what becomes the value of that education? Well, what filled that gap? was this sort of progressive social justice ideology, which meant that over the last 30 years or so, getting a a liberal arts degree in English or history or whatever it was turned you into a good progressive, right? It it put you on the right side of history. It taught you all the different ways to make social justice real within a liberal framework. That now, um, that whole ideology and that whole world, that whole sort of university-driven leftism uh, is in crisis, it's in crisis we started this episode talking about the crisis within of legitimation within the Democratic Party it's part of the same crisis because you're all these people are leaving universities with these great ideas of diversity equity inclusion um, uh, progressive social justice well, or well, whatever you- but 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 the actual structures behind the everything that makes those things impossible right, continues on. And so it it gets thrust into this sphere of this never-ending culture war because it can't even live up to the promises that it proposes to begin with.
1: Well, I think, I mean, of course, like, ultimately it's backlash is like, well, we support this empire one way or another. And so DEI, I think, is this slight adjustment that's meant to proceed as normal in a way that feels better, Mm. And the backlash against that is like, you're not even supposed to, to feel better. You're not even supposed to have any sort of progressive illusions over what this is. Mm. And uh, so again, it's, it's part of this backlash against the, the way that people assert their problems with the way things are. And the suppression of it, I think is leading towards the idea that we need to have like this kind of unitary state power led by the capitalist explicitly. Mm. No more of like the biden pretending to include the social movements in the executive power anymore Mm. and i i think like the democrats and republicans are increasingly in agreement with that and it's just being made more and more explicit and that that's most obvious in the sense in the fact that the democrats are throwing this election Mm. as long as they let biden and harris run they're throwing the election they might win it by accident
0: but Mm. you know i mean there's there's many different ways that they could win of it but none of them are honorable
1: (laughs) but the yeah the um like if 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 it's true that Trump is going to c- turn the United States into a fascist dictatorship which may well be true why aren't they fighting it with like a popular candidate like right, yeah. with uh with someone exactly like Biden who maybe has a chance of winning
0: because they want us to keep fucking playing this game man it's the it's the same as like the the it's it's like a- No
1: I think I think they're they're over the game I think the Democrats are not playing the game anymore they're essentially fine with Trump managing things because they're essentially fine with what Trump's done. Like what, what is, what has Trump done? Like the, the only thing that I think Trump has going for him in terms of mass support right now is that he could come out against the supporting Ukraine Mm -hmm. and he could, come out against supporting israel too he
0: would argue that you have to that the problem is no no deal maker has got in there and sat the two sides down and made a deal trump could be the one that actually stopped sending the two pound bombs over I mean, there he Not will for be good ideological yeah. reasons but because he's a deal maker he's, he will he's the deals be, guy
1: he will present himself as the anti-war candidate and it'll be hard to argue i mean like he's it's bullshit like he he almost went to war with iran after he lost the election to keep himself in power Mm. you know one of his targets along with like the fbi and the deep state or whatever is the military because the military wouldn't go along with going to war with iran in december 2020 when he was about to lose so it's ridiculous to say that he's the anti-war candidate um which is only part of the reason the democrats are okay with him coming back to power Mm. because they're okay with a war with iran too that they they prefer not to do it themselves,
0: right, right, right. Yeah, I feel like um, the objection to uh, to Trump uh, is is a stylistic one. Certainly, I think that the fears about him and his rhetoric uh, and his um, inability to like keep a thought in his head or have any sort of organizational principles or whatsoever does scare the crap out of Democrats and progressives in this country. I think for good reason. Um, but I think that you know. What Trump threatens uh, is in a is in a kind of mirror way what the DEI threatens, right? Trump threatens the deep state, and what is the deep state but the administrative state? We talked about this on our last um, uh, news episode, right? Where like um, this idea of wiping out all sorts of different agencies, of getting rid of career bureaucrats, is the is the real threat at the heart of the Trump presidency, right? Is that what he did in a kind of inchoate and haphazard way left last, last time, uh, his last four years, he'll be able to actually succeed at, uh, which is like a radical, uh, cutting down of, um, like non like governmental organizations that are not elected, right, very like ancient sort of like nineteenth century conception of what American governance should be, what offends um the liberals then is is this idea that like this the technocratic state, the state which smooths out all the edges allegedly uh, of capital accumulation that ensures that workers have a fair and productive life uh that that could come to an end, that we'd be back into the jungle again, what they want in the universities is the, is the same thing right they want to wipe out a similar administrative quote unquote caste that exists within those universities to ensure fairness and equity or whatever this is a battle over the administration of institutions the institution of the university and the institution of the state both of which right now are under uh, are within legitimacy crises and also various uh, threats uh, to, to their own particular power. So these sort of proxy battles that, that that come off as culture war battles are really this attempt to either attack or to salvage this sort of broader, big, um, neoliberal. let's call it, conception of uh, bringing fairness and equity to capitalist accumulation and to the production of knowledge and workers.
1: Yeah, exactly. So let's wrap it up there. Um, before we go, I just want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, in 2023, we're going to keep going strong in 2024. We have a lot of awesome guests lined up already. And if you want to continue supporting the show, please do at patreon.com slash the We have a special 2024 promotion. If you subscribe at the yearly $10 level, which gives you a, a big discount if you subscribe for the year, and you send me your mailing address I will send you the George Floyd Uprising book, which I contributed to. It's edited by The Vortex Group. It's from PM Press, from the ground of the George Floyd Uprising, from New York, from Atlanta, from Kenosha, from Minneapolis. It's a really exciting read. If you like the show, I think you'll like the book a lot. So if you sign up at the $10 level for the year, I will send out that book to you. And if you subscribe at the $5 annual level, I'll send you something nice, too. I think we're almost out of postcards, so I'll send the last ones out to the next subscribers. And then when the book is out, I've got like, a I don't know, maybe 20 copies of the book left. Oh, good, yeah. So, yeah, please sign up.
0: Yeah, we're going to have a great time in 2024 20, with the election and various other things. Oh, um, and
1: one other thing. Um, I'm going to start streaming on Twitch again. Oh, yeah. Uh, with my friend Pog Chan. We'll be... Watching and reacting to videos, talking about politics in real time. Hopefully Sean will join us.
0: Yeah, I'd love to. So
1: I'm not sure how often I'll do it, but twitch.tv slash theantifada. Please subscribe and check us out when we're live.
0: I've been at this job for four months and it was supposed to be over by now and I'm so sick of it. Uh, It should be ending next week, so I'll have time to do stuff like that. And if you've gotten this far, I'd like to announce that a uh, New York City meetup for the antifada is uh, still a go. We're looking for. We're looking at the last weekend of January. So if you're anywhere in the tri-state area, stay tuned. We're going to meet probably in the basement of a church somewhere, and we're going to talk <laughs> about plans. Oh, the church meetings are coming back. Oh, they're coming back in a big way, baby. Church commission. The church commission is back, and now it's communist. So yeah, uh, I remember stay tuned the last time
1: Sean hosted a church meeting, and uh, oh. let's just say you don't want to miss
0: it. No, you don't want to miss it. Uh, we'll see you there.